welcome to The Ralph Report with Ralph Garman. Hey everybody, welcome to The Ralph Report for a Monday. It is the 2nd of April. So good to be back with you. Thanks so much, by the way, everybody, for uh, being very supportive of me taking a few days off last week and going and spending some time with the family. We went skiing, as you know. More on that in just a moment, but uh, it was great for you guys to be so supportive and say, yeah, go do, spend some time with your kid during spring break. We'll be here when you get back, and sure enough, look at you. There you are. And I know you enjoyed the interview with Brian Lynch as well that I was playing all last week and uh, got a lot of great feedback, and why not? Brian is a terrific guy and a huge talent and a great interview, so I'm glad you guys all enjoyed that. Good one this week as well. It's kind of cool. We're doing back-to-back writers. Last week, as I mentioned, Brian Lynch, terrific screenwriter, great success in animation. And this week is going to be one of the greats in television. All week long, you'll be hearing my interview with David Mandel. David, if you don't recognize the name, was a, a writer right out of Harvard with the National Lampoon, went to Saturday Night Live then went to Seinfeld, then Curb Your Enthusiasm, then Clerks, the animated series with our buddy Kevin Smith, and now is the showrunner on Veep, as if that isn't enough. That's quite a run in television. He's a great guy, fascinating guy, huge geek too, by the way, giant nerd. And I did the interview and his, uh, basically you have to call it a museum. That's where he was. Uh, it's where he keeps all of his collectibles and all his memorabilia, and it is nuts in there. So we'll talk more about that later on today. But let's get things kicked off the way we do every Monday, because it's important. After the weekend, I have to tell you... The top five things I learned this weekend. Top five things I learned this weekend. Number, number five. Number five is... Uh, it's, I need to spread the word about this television show. If you're not watching a show called Counterpart, you are missing out. And I tweeted about it earlier, uh, last week I guess it was, but I want to make sure that you all know about it. If you are like me and you love suspense and drama and thrillers and espionage and all that kind of cool stuff, Counterpart on Stars, the Stars Network, has this in spades. And the best part is it's got the amazing J.K. Simmons as the star. Um, quick overview. The premise is some 30 years ago during the cold war in Berlin, something went wrong with an experiment that was happening there. And the, our universe got split in two, got doubled in essence. And there's a pathway that takes you from one universe to the other. And they are identical meaning that there's a Berlin on their side and Berlin on our side, and everyone that exists on our side exists on their side. So everyone has a doppelganger on both sides. And there's a lot of political intrigue between both sides. And um, it is, if you ever you remember Fringe on Fox, it's a lot like that, where there was uh, another universe that had people who were exact duplicates of the people on the other side. So it is, it's a fascinating story on that level. But once you get into the espionage and us versus them, there's some great sort of symbolism and allegories 
for the fact that, you know, what would happen if we found people identical to ourselves? Would we declare war on them? Would we treat them as enemies? And in essence, anytime we go to war with anybody on this planet, it's kind of like that because people are people, right? So um, great, great premise. But then you add the terrific writing in this show. I've just been binge-watching it the past couple weeks. And it's one of those shows, once you watch one, you say, all right, screw it. I'm not going to bed. I'm going to watch the next one. Terrific writing, terrific performances throughout. A lot of European actors that I don't know, but I'm a huge fan of now. And, of course, as I mentioned, J.K. Simmons as the uh, star of the whole thing. So it's just great. And if you're looking for a sci-fi thriller espionage kind of show and you're not watching counterpart i definitely wanted to give you the heads up i thought you would appreciate it check it out it's on the stars network this isn't a plug i'm not getting paid for this this isn't a promotion i'm just in love with this show and i want to spread the word so people will watch it and maybe we'll get another season out of it that's five number four number four is we need to stop using rap to sell things in commercials it's 2018 enough's enough this isn't like when it was a fad and, ooh, this is, this is the, the kids will love this. They'll eat this up. We're going to put this ad to a rap beat, and we're going to have bad rappers talk about our product. That, that trend, we've all suffered with it for many, many years now. It's time to let it go. Rap is the mainstream. It's part of our world. It, it's not novel anymore. It's not cute. You're not getting anybody's attention by doing something that's rap-based, especially when you're selling to kids. It's just awful, and it, it just it grates on the ears and on the brain, and it needs to stop. The reason I discovered that again this weekend, I was watching uh, television with my kid, and the commercials come on, and I heard this horrific rap for yo-yo ball it's a yo-yo ball it's so much fun and easy to do around you goes it comes back to you and you never have to wind it you can do it all everybody it's a yo-yo ball oh for fuck's sake please make it stop oh god and we've all lived through 30 years of that now it's it's it's, it's the bad rap it's not funny anymore and especially when they're not trying to be ironic with it. It's worse when they try to be genuine with it and really sell kids yo-yo balls with a rap. Or we see one of these preachers like, Jesus is my homie. And it's just enough. Let it go. Let the rappers rap and just find some new way to sell your product. I cannot accept it anymore. I will not accept it anymore. Stop using rap in commercials. That's number four. Number three. Number three also discovered this weekend that April Fool's is just bullshit. Right? Can we just let this go? April Fools. It is is it it's not funny. It's supposed to be the joke holiday. Has any April Fools joke ever really made you laugh? It's just so fucking lame, April Fools. Because it it I've never laughed less on any day of the year than I do on April Fools. It's it's not funny. There's no jokes there. All April Fools is hey, you know that thing that you thought was happening? Ah, it's not really happening. That's not a joke. There's no real humor in there. It's me saying to you, dude, I just saw someone breaking into your car in the parking lot. And you run out there ready to throw down. And then there's no one breaking into your car. And I go, ah, April Fool's. That's not a joke. It's just cruelty for cruelty's sake. And then instant relief. How is that funny? Uh, Funnier things happen every day of the year except for April Fool's Day. It's the least funny day. 
And I think we all need to accept that and we need to move on and we need to let it go and realize that April Fool's is, isn't really a funny thing anymore. And maybe it never was. We were just all kidding ourselves. Number two. Number two. It struck me this weekend that Easter and April Fool's should always be on the same day. Because that was the really the beginning, when you think about it, of the April Fool's Day jokes. It was Jesus, who was supposed to be dead, coming back and saying, ha ha, April Fool's, I wasn't really dead. Right? That was the gag. He would say, um, you know, I, I died on the cross for your sins and stuff. And then three days later, he rolls the big boulder aside and boom, he's back. So it's the same thing. It's the setup. It's the cruelty that we thought Jesus died. And then it's the sweet relief of knowing that wasn't actually the case. So April Fool's and Easter really are the same holiday and I think should always fall on the same day. Number one. And number one thing I found out this weekend is that gravity always wins. Yes, I went uh, skiing for the first time up in Big Bear, California, uh, the end of last week and over the weekend, and I had never been skiing before. And so my daughter wanted to try and her cousin ski, so we met my sister-in-law and her boyfriend and their two girls and my wife and my daughter Olivia and then my wife's mother also was there. So it was a, a room, and well, a house full of relatives and we were up there in Big Bear and everyone else had skied before except for myself and my daughter Olivia. So we thought we would take a class together, take a private together just to get the basics and then we would hit the slopes. And as always in these situations, kids pick it up instantly, right? And my kid was no exception. She uh, was she got the lion's share of the attention from the instructor, which was only appropriate. I did not uh, mind that because I want my kid to get the best instruction to be the safe as she could be on the slopes. I mean, and, and part of me was a, a parental concern that she might get hurt. So I figured the more she knew, the better off she would be. So she got the, the majority of the attention, but I certainly was able to pay, pay attention to that uh, interaction and to pick up some tips in myself. And I learned, you know, uh, pizza and, and French fries. And if you've ever, taken, ever been around a kid taking uh, skiing lessons, you know what that means. It's when the, the skis are parallel versus when you sort of point the tips in towards each other and you swing the back ends out, the tail of the skis out, and you do that snow plow thing to slow yourself down. So um, those were the basics, right? And my kid's up there. And the, the instructor's skiing backwards with her and sort of guiding her. And I'm just sort of going along for the ride. And I got I to gotta admit, for a first-timer as an adult and not having the benefit of um, youthful balance and being close to the ground like my kid was so that falling wasn't really an issue because her center of gravity was so low, I did okay. Better than I really anticipated, quite frankly. However, being a novice, and it was sort of a perfect storm, too, because the conditions were not great. The skiing conditions were not great. It was the end of the season. It was very warm up there, so there was a lot of melting snow and then refreezing overnight and then melting again. So it was largely icy conditions, certainly early on in the morning when we first hit the slopes. 
They would soften up as the day went on, but then it would get kind of slushy by midday, and it wasn't great, as far as I'm, I'm told. Again, not being much of a skier, at we're not being a skier at all. I was not aware of, you know, ideal conditions, but everyone was saying it would have been better had there been some fresh powder or snow on there. So it was icy conditions, slushy, icy conditions, not great. And I found, especially early on, it was hard for me to sort of dig in to the, um, the icy nature of the snow and slow myself down. I was sort of sliding on top because it was so icy. And being a big guy, inertia and uh, um, gravity has its way with me. You know, a, a small kid can sort of slow down fairly easily. Once I get going at a pretty good clip downhill, it was harder and harder for me to stop. And I had my share of uh, tumbles. I ate shit several times throughout the holiday. And um, you, when you're going downhill quickly on waxed pieces of plexiglass or fiberglass or whatever they are, you are, it's sheer terror. It's just terror. I was scared to death. And I would try to snow plow and pizza my ass off and try to dig in. And sometimes it would work and sometimes it just wouldn't. And then I would panic and start going straight again and go faster. And invariably, that's when I would catch an edge of the ski and just, just bite it. Just go down hard. Now, I'm going to be sending out a newsletter today just to check in with everybody. And uh, I've included photos in that newsletter of what my body looks like now. Which, here's the thing, they tell you to fall on your side on skis. So if you, because if you fall backwards, you, you wrench your knees because your uh, feet are locked into these snow boots and you can really do some damage to your knees if you fall backwards. So they say to fall to your side again, because if you fall forward, same uh, premise, you're, you're locked into these bindings. So what you want to do is fall to the side. And so I did that. I, I listened to my instructor and my hips and quads on, on the outside, both sides of my body. Look like someone took a fucking baseball bat to me. I look like I ran afoul of a loan shark and I did not get him his money back in time. Um, uh, I'm, I, I bruise easily, so it looks even worse than it is. But I got to tell you, I'm still pretty sore. I'm walking pretty gingerly. And my arm is all banged up and scraped up. For I, I bit it on my elbow and my forearm, which was really sort of the most painful of all of them. Uh, slamming down onto ice at a high speed is not good for anybody. So I guess uh, what I learned really over the weekend is, first of all, I enjoyed skiing. I think I will do it again. But what I really learned is that gravity wins every time. Gravity is unbeaten, as they say. And, oh, it took its toll. And I was ready ready to come down the mountain and come back and do the Ralph report. So uh, that's what I learned this weekend. Again, you can see those photos in the newsletter I'll be sending out this afternoon. Um, don't worry. I will heal up unless I throw a clot <laughs> because I, I have massive contusions all over my body. The top five things I learned this weekend. Yeah, those are the top five things I learned this weekend. So It's fun, though. I, I get it, but I, I, even at my best, and I had some pretty good runs, quite frankly, I'll have you know, um, by midday, I was like, okay, I kind of did that. You know, you go down, you get on the, the lift, and you go up to the top of the hill, and you come down the hill, and that's kind of exciting, and then you get on the lift, and you go up, and you come down the hill, and you do that, I don't know, what, a dozen times from morning till lunch, 
I was like, okay, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to head back and get a cocktail at the house because uh, I've, I've had that experience. So, I, I mean, I enjoyed it, but I can't imagine the hardcore skiers who just go all day long. I don't see the, uh, the attraction in that, but maybe that's me. Anyway, it's good to be back here on a Monday. And because it's a Monday, we're going to look at all the showbiz news. Starting off with this weekend's box office. We always love to see what people went to see at the theaters. And one way we could tell is by seeing who landed in the top ten at the box office this weekend. Number one, no surprise there, Ready Player One. The new Steven Spielberg film, which uh, I have not seen yet. Went to the movies with the kid this weekend, but did not get a chance to see Ready Player One. I'm going to see it this week. I'll let you know what I think. It came in at number one with 41 Point two million dollars this weekend. Pretty good opening. Number two at the box office was Tyler Perry's Acrimony. That came in at number two with $17.1 million. Boy, that Tyler Perry just prints money, doesn't he? Black Panther was third at the box office. Another $11.2 million for that monster hit. I can only imagine spiritual country music movie came in at number four with 10.7 million dollars a lot of people going to see that man that is lost on me pacific rim uprising was fifth with 9.2 million sherlock gnomes that's the movie i checked out at the theaters this weekend with my kid i gotta tell you i got a kick out of it there's a lot of elton john music but i enjoyed it and so you can expect a review from Livy at the Movies sometime this week for about uh, Sherlock Gnomes. $7 million made it number six. Love, Simon was seventh at the box office. Tomb Raider came in at number eight. A Wrinkle in Time, $4.6 million made it number nine. And then number 10, Paul, Apostle of Christ, made $3.5 million. And if a movie called Paul, Apostle of Christ, can't make it in the top 10 on Easter weekend, when can it make it? Another hero that has risen is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Things were pretty dicey, apparently. He is in stable condition after going heart surgery. Friday, apparently, he had a heart surgery here in Los Angeles, and his rep is saying that he is recovering after the heart procedure, and that's the most important part, he says, which is very mysterious and kind of off-putting. No one really knows exactly what happened, but here's basically the story from as I understand it. He had a replacement for an aortic valve in 1997 and apparently this procedure was another valve replacement apparently that was a uh, not meant to be a permanent replacement and this was going to be another one and then he experienced some complications during what they're saying was a somewhat experimental procedure to put this in and that's why he needed the emergency open heart surgery but by all accounts he is on the mend and friends and co-workers say that they have heard from him and he's going to be all right. Uh, the family says when he came out of the surgery and he came out of the anesthesia, the first thing he said was, I'm back. So that's how you know Arnold is going to be okay because he's making gags about his old movie career. <laughs> then he said, I have no total recall of what happened while I was out. Oh, look, look at me under this hospital gown. I'm going Commando, ha, Ooh, the stitches in my chest, it feels like red heat in my chest, uh, heart disease is a predator that I wouldn't wish on anybody, I hope I'm the last action hero to have this procedure, <laughs> alright, I'll stop, and this, uh, 
This was sad news. Um, Stephen Bochco has passed away at the age of 74. If you don't know his name, you just don't know much about television. He was a genius. He changed television and uh, for the better. He made television grow up, in essence, with such groundbreaking TV series as Hill Street Blues, then, of course, L.A. Law and NYPD Blue. He um, was a, a genius producer, writer, showrunner, and just such a really, really good guy. So kind, so generous. I was lucky enough to work on NYPD Blue the last few seasons it was on television. And he was largely, um, he had his hands off the day-to-day operations of the show by then, but he was still always around, and I had several occasions to spend some time with him. And he was remarkably kind and welcoming and made you feel like you were his equal, and I certainly was not. And the fact that he was um, so kind to me always stayed with me, above and beyond being a fan of his work. He... um, He came out of Universal Studios back in the day when they would hire writers and directors and actors and keep them on staff. Now, the old studio system, as it was known, and he did a lot of television writing, sort of um, assembly line television, they called it. You know, he would work hard on scripts and for shows like Columbo and things like that, but it it taught him how to write drama and how to uh, produce a show effectively and efficiently, and he did just that. If you look at the uh, sort of the coaching tree of guys who worked with him on his shows future star showrunners who came through his shows like Dick Wolf who went on to an amazing career with the Law and Order franchise and David E. Kelly and David Milch and even Joel Fields who now is doing the Americans he was a great teacher and taught a lot of people how to do great television besides doing it himself so uh, when I heard about his passing I was very saddened and uh, brought back many memories of being on NYPD Blue even just the, the few episodes I did. I don't know. I think it did eight or nine episodes. But uh, every time I had a chance to hang with him or spend some time with him, it was a real pleasure. So sad news that he's gone. You may remember us talking about Cynthia Nixon from Sex in the City. She's running for governor of New York. Well, she's going to do her first sit-down television interview with a hard-hitting journalist, Wendy Williams of the talk show, The Wendy Williams Show. We'll be talking to Cynthia Nixon about her turn into politics this Wednesday, April 4th. Apparently, they'll be sitting down. Um, That's odd, isn't it? Wouldn't you sit down with a real journalist if you're going to talk about your run for the governorship of New York City? I mean, that show is uh, shitty, first of all. It's awful. It's unwatchable. But Wendy Williams talks about celebrity news and pop culture, and I can't imagine why Cynthia Nixon would want to talk for the first time on television about her career with Wendy Williams. Now, that being said, the truth is the show is very popular. I have to admit, two million viewers a day, they say it gets. And apparently she is a New York media figure, so I'm assuming the show is popular in New York, but really? Actually, I have a little audio. Here's here's the uh, the interview. Here's how exactly what you can hear on Wednesday. How you doing? Yeah, that's gonna be a lot of that. How you doing? Good. I'm running for governor. How you doing? I'm feeling pretty good. A little nervous. How you doing? Well, I think I can handle the, uh, the state the size of New York. I think I can manage it. How you doing? Well, I'll, I'll hire a great staff and I'll, I'll put a lot of people 
around me that I know uh, know the the political workings of of New York State. How you doing? <laughs> it's just gonna be that over and over again. This made me cringe. Uh, step up actress Allison Stoner. It was a, a news story this weekend that she revealed in Teen Vogue that she's a lesbian, that she's in love with a woman. It's 2018, for God's sakes. Let's put that up there with no more rap songs and commercials. Is it really news that someone loves someone of the same sex? Are we really at that stage still? That Allison Stoner, who I didn't even know, which made that, that story even more curious to me, apparently she was um, in the Step Up franchise. She was in those movies. And this, so, so? That's all I can say, so? Why is that news? Oh, wait a minute, I'm reading here. She was also the little pigtail dancer in Missy Elliott's music video. Work it. In 2002. Well, now I can see why. Everyone is just shocked that she's a lesbian. Who cares? And uh, this is no surprise. Roseanne's reboot. The Roseanne show, it's got uh, renewed already. It's going to be renewed after an, an, an audience turnout of, I don't know, 20 million viewers who came back for the debut of the rebooted franchise. See, this is why we can't have nice things, people. Because these reboots and these remakes, for every one that does well, we're going to get 20 more on television. For every Roseanne, we're going to sit through a bunch of Cagney and Lacey reboots. And look, I suppose it's fine. A lot of people are saying it's a political thing. Trump is taking credit for it, saying it's it's my people that are watching it. I don't know. I think people just like that show. I never did. I didn't watch the first time around, and I'm not watching this one, only because I find her uh, grating. I find Roseanne Barr supremely annoying. She does. Here's the thing about television, especially I think sitcoms. You watch those shows because you like the people. There's a there's a uh, personality meshing there of the person who's starring on that show. You want to spend a half an hour with them every week because you like them or you, something about them resonates with you. And I didn't watch it the first time around because I just wanted to scream, shut up, every time she was talking on the screen. I love John Goodman, love Laurie Metcalf, great cast on that show. I just couldn't, I just couldn't. I just simply could not and cannot now. So congratulations to Roseanne and company. I'm glad things are going well for them. And this was odd. For those of you who ever asked the question, is there tweeting after death? Well, apparently, yes, there is. Gary Shandling's account posted a tweet for the first time since his death in March 2016. They have reopened Gary's Twitter account, and now they're going to be tweeting pieces of writing from Gary's journals and his diaries, and he will continue to tweet even after his death. Apparently his family and friends have gotten together and they're going to pass on more jewels of wisdom from Gary Shandling. Here's what the tweet said. Friends who love Gary, working with his estate, are opening up Gary's Twitter. We will occasionally tweet material from the writings, notes, and journals he has left us. Let life live through you. Presence, compassion, kindness. Well, I guess that's all good. We can all use more of that stuff in the world, right? It just seems to me that one of the upsides of being dead is that you didn't have to worry about tweeting anymore didn't have to try to put your tweets together. You could just let all that go. Here's the first joke shared on uh, the reactivated Gary Shandling account. I took a couple of years off. I made a mistake because I realized you only exist if you're on TV. And even God goes, hey, hey, I can't help you. I haven't seen you. I've been flipping around. I can't help you. So 
I hope that's not the case. I hope that's not why he had to start tweeting again, so God knew who he was. Let's take a look and see who was born on this day, April 2nd. All these stars were born. Linda Hunt is 73 years old today. Great actress. You ever see Silverado? She's terrific in that. Of course, The Year of Living Dangerously. Uh, Christopher Maloney from Law & Order. And Oz, 57 years old today. Karen Woodward of Bananarama. It's a cruel, cruel summer. 57 years old today. Clark Gregg. Oh, Agent Coulson. 56 years old today. You guys watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. this season? So good. I love that show. Adam Rodriguez from CSI Miami and Criminal Minds. He's 43 years old. Michael Fassbender, who apparently can give Liam Neeson a run for his money when it comes to the size of his Johnson. 41 years old today. And Jesse Plemons from Fargo and Breaking Bad is 30. I'm Ralph Garman. I walk the showbiz beat. As you know, I love hearing from you guys, and I always appreciate when you take the time to reach out. You can do it in several ways. You can always write me at ralph at theralphreport.com, and you can also leave your message at one eight three three hi ralph like these folks did. Last week, I was talking about uh, how I find it so curious that when I see another Mustang owner, someone with the same type car as me, I, I always make a point of nodding and waving and smiling, and it's a weird sort of uh, family. It's like a car love thing that goes on between the owners of cars, and I didn't know if that was unique to me or Mustang owners, and I heard from a ton of you folks saying, yes, you also fear some strange, weird connection to people who have the same car as you, including this gentleman. Hey, Ralph, this is Sam, uh, four-star general from Oklahoma, and uh about the uh, the things you learned over the weekend, I just wanted to comment on uh, your connection with other people that drive the same vehicles. Uh, here in Oklahoma, I actually live in Tulsa. Route 66 passes through, and there's lots of classic cars and definitely a car culture here. And I, I'd say that that is pretty common, especially uh, along Route 66. There you go. Route 66. People do it all the time. So I guess it's a pretty common thing. But it's strange, isn't it? Like I said, it's strange that simply owning the same car would create a bond between people. Look, we need as many bonds as we can get. So I guess that's fine. Uh, This next call came from Jack. He wanted to reach out not only for himself, but for his wife. Hey, Ralph. This is Jack O'Day from Lexington, South Carolina. Uh, This morning tell you how awesome of a show you have, man. Like, you make my day go by so fast in my morning, really. But, um, it's, and I look forward to it every morning when I'm at my desk. So, I appreciate it. Um, also want to let you know that, um, my wife is pretty much obsessed with you, and her birthday is coming up soon. So, if you could possibly give her a shout out, her name is, uh, Ashley. So, I would appreciate it. If not, it's cool. Nothing makes me happier than when a man calls me and tells me that his wife is obsessed with me. It's the greatest thing ever. It's one of the great byproducts of being an entertainer, is that occasionally a a man will come up to you and say, my wife is just crazy about you. That doesn't happen in most other professions. So, Ashley, I do want to thank you for your support and for your uh, horrible taste in entertainers. Although I'm lucky that it happens to fall my way, and I want to wish you a very, very happy birthday. And uh, your husband, Jack, is very uh, secure in your marriage because he just offered you up to me, and he knows that you. when it comes down to it, you're going to choose him every time. And lastly, and when you do call uh, 1-833-HIGH-RALPH, 
please identify yourself because I don't know who to thank for these uh, calls. And this is one of them. Just a, a caller came in and left this message, and I'm so glad he did because it's something that I haven't talked about here yet on the show, and I think I should. Hey, Ralph. Um, just want to ask a serious question. I've tried many times to quit smoking. What did you do, man? I mean, yours, your way has proven awesome for you. What'd you do, man? Just need something to help me through because anytime I'm stressed, I really can't overcome the desire to have a cigarette. So just saying, if you have a secret, come on, man, help me out. Because I don't want to be a slave to tobacco anymore. But tell you what, thank you for putting out the Ralph Report. Keep doing what you're doing. You're awesome. Appreciate you. And love you too, man. Take it easy. Bye. All right, unknown listener. Uh, Love you too, even though I don't know your name. Thanks so much for bringing up the smoking thing. Because I did mention at some point that I had been a year... Uh, smoke-free. I don't know if it was on this show or in Hollywood Babylon, but uh, it's been a year, over a year now, since I quit smoking. And it is one of the hardest things to do. And I realize I haven't really talked much about it. And it might be something that I can offer up some sort of help to someone who's going through the same thing. So let's talk about how I did it. And look, there's no one way to do it, obviously because there's a million products out there and there's a million techniques and I tried them all too. So maybe mine will help you. And it's not, it's not a radical idea and it's certainly not uh, unique to me, but this is what worked for me. And I think you may have a, uh, a, a leg up caller because you had touched on something that I think was really key in, in why it stuck for me this time. Cause I'm like everyone else. I smoked for almost 30 years, and I tried to quit a dozen times. And every time I had a stressful moment or I had a, a, a weak moment or, or an intense moment, I would reach for cigarettes again. So that definitely plays a part in it. You have to try to find some way to deal with the stress other than with cigarettes. But here's also what I did. And this is after trying so many different techniques. And they say cold turkey is the most successful way just to stop. I could never do that. The withdrawals from um, the, the habit of it were too intense. And then also the actual physical withdrawals from nicotine were also too strong for me to, to deal with when I would just, just quit. So I had to try other methods. And this was what worked for me. Get yourself a pen and paper and like a journal book, a notebook, and write down how many cigarettes you smoke a day. Count them. Every cigarette, don't, you know, don't deny yourself. Don't try to whittle it down. Don't try to quit. Just mark down, a little hash mark, whatever it takes, every time you have a cigarette through the course of the day. Start getting aware of how often you're smoking. Because smoking often is a mindless activity. It is uh, something you do out of habit, so you're not really conscious while you're doing it. You're not aware. You don't, you don't actively participate in the mental aspect of smoking. You do it unconsciously while you're driving or while you're on the phone or while you're doing whatever activity it is while you, while you smoke. Very rarely do you just stop and just smoke a cigarette. But like the caller, I was getting tired of being a slave to those moments. 
it started to be less and less, and it certainly does in the in the world we live in now, get less and less convenient to smoke. You can't smoke in most uh, hotels. You can't smoke in most buildings. You can't smoke in other people's homes. You can't smoke in bars and restaurants. You just can't smoke anywhere. So your life becomes a series of, okay, when can I take a break to step outside to go do this? Or when am I going to get off this plane so I can get out of the luggage area and go have a cigarette before I pick up my bags? And you start to orchestrate your life around these moments of how can you carve out time to go do this activity? I got so tired of being a slave to that mentality. It got so frustrating for me that I really was motivated to quit because of that, even more so than the health issues and, and everything else. Although I should have been more you know, aware, not aware, everyone's aware of the, the health damage that cigarettes do, but some people just don't give a shit. And I was one of those people because I never really had many uh, detrimental effects in terms of shortness of breath or any of that stuff. So what really got to me was I was tired of being a slave to the activity and I wanted to break that cycle. So again, what I did was I would take a, uh, a little booklet or sheet of paper, whatever, and I would mark down how many cigarettes I was having in the course of a day. And then from that number, you just start to peel back. And this is a longer process than some people may want to go through when it comes to quitting cigarettes. But like I'm saying, it worked for me. So let's say I was smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I would mark 15 cigarettes and every for a week I smoke my, average, my same amount, 15. Then the next week, I would see how many I could take out of my day. So um, it's an experiment today. I'm going to see if I can smoke 13 and not lose my mind and not get withdrawals and not get cranky. And, you know, I'm just going to see what, what, what's the next number I can jump to. And sometimes you can jump two or three cigarettes down and you don't really miss them. So let's say you go to 13. And then the next week, you do that for an entire week. And then the next week you go to 11 or 10. And then you get down to eight, seven, six cigarettes the following week. Now, when you get down to the lower numbers, it might take you a little bit longer to um, move on to that next stage. So maybe you're going to smoke seven cigarettes a day for three weeks. And then you get five cigarettes for two weeks. But eventually, you will get yourself down to one cigarette a day. One cigarette a day. And you will smoke one cigarette a day for several weeks. But I'm telling you something, anybody can stop smoking one cigarette a day. Because what you're doing is you're breaking all the other times in your day where you have cigarettes. If you're smoking one cigarette a day, and for me it ended up being pretty much at the end of my day, or after dinner, but I meant my drive into work, I wasn't smoking anymore. My drive home from work, I wasn't smoking anymore. Uh, afternoons, not smoking. After lunch, not smoking. So you have, you have broken that habit. You have severed that um, activity, the relationship of that activity to those times in your life. You've already broken those. You just got one left. And, and I, like I said, I firmly believe that anybody can stop smoking one cigarette a day. You can stop doing something you only do once a day. So after a couple of weeks of doing once a day, it was a spring break of last year. I was going away with my kid and my wife. We're taking a trip, and I put out that cigarette, and I said, all right, I'm not going to do it around the kid. I'm not going to do it when I'm on vacation, so I have to try to find a place at the hotel where I go to have a cigarette. I'm just, I'm just done. And that was over a year ago. So that worked for me. And like I said, there's a million techniques out there. There's a million products. There's Chantix, and there's patches and stuff. I tried all of that stuff. Nothing worked for me, but this, this way, 
I was able to slowly whittle it down to one cigarette a day, and I, could, I knew I could stop smoking one cigarette a day. So if it's something you want to do, and I'm not a, I'm not a guy who goes around preaching the good book, you know, and uh, trying to see everyone who lights up, trying to talk them out of it, because I always resented that when people would do it to me. I didn't want to get a lecture. Leave me alone. Let me smoke my cigarette. So I don't go around telling people what to do. But if you get to the place where you do want to quit, I wholly recommend quitting and, uh, you know, then I gained a ton of weight, so I got other problems, but I, I recommend you quitting and maybe this technique is something that can help you. So give it a shot, see what you think, but thanks so much for asking. And thanks so much to everybody who contacted me at the hotline, which again is one eight three three. Hi Ralph. And now for the first installment of this week's series of interviews, with my very special guest, David Mandel. David Mandel, many of you may know, especially if you are Kevin Smith fans and listen to me on Hollywood Babylon along with Kevin, you may know him as one of the great comic minds behind Clerks, the animated series, and he absolutely was. But this guy has done it all. I mean, uh, got out of Harvard after working on the National Lampoon, which is sort of like comedy royalty anyway, then moved on to uh, SNL, then Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, the movie Euro Trip, which he wrote and directed along with two of his friends, a Veep, which is still the best damn comedy on television, in my opinion. He is now the showrunner for that show as it enters its final season. And on top of that all, he is one of the most prolific collectors of geekdom that I've ever seen. This interview that you're about to hear this week, all week long, was done in his museum, which, and listen... You know, you're talking to a guy who's a collector here. I am fairly proud of my collection here in the Batcave. He makes me look like a nobody, like I've got like a guy who never collected anything. It is insane the stuff that he has. Original screen used pieces from Star Wars, and not a, one of the Star Wars is Star Wars, the one they call now a New Hope. Luke Luke's poncho and pants. A uh, stormtrooper outfit, a Darth Vader helmet. I mean, I'm not kidding you. This is the real stuff. A camera that was used to shoot that film. Screen used props from Back to the Future, the Indiana Jones films. Uh, original comic art lines the walls everywhere you look. You're seeing original Jack Kirby's and Frank Miller's and Neil Adams and uh, Steve Ditko. Every giant in the comic industry, original covers. Uh, panels, original comic art everywhere. Um, everywhere you turn, stunning, stunning stuff. And it was a joy not only to hang out with him and talk with him. He's a very funny, entertaining, charming guy, but also to be around that stuff and to get the tour was so much fun. So anyway, here is the first installment of this week's series of interviews with David Mandel. And this covers David's youth and his obsession with comic books, and he was like uh, like many of us, a, a geek from early on. And then his decision to go to Harvard, and his had no idea how he was going to end up, if he was going to end up in show business, had no desire going into Harvard. And he came out the other side well on his way to a career, one of the best careers in comedy writing and producing and directing. So here is installment one of my interview with David Mandel. David, thank you so much for doing this for me. I appreciate it. It's a real pleasure. 
we're going to uh, walk down memory lane, as Uh-oh. it were, to give people sort of an overview of this amazing career that you've had. Uh, where are you from originally, by the way? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New York City. New York City. Yeah. 70th and West End. My folks are still there. Really? Yeah, with a uh, the same apartment, everything. Uh, it looks like I died in a sailing accident at age like 16. <laughs> you know, like in like ordinary You're frozen people. in time. And, just, and my mother just left it to remember me and make my little brother feel terrible. Only Is I'm your room fine. a shrine? Is, Is it a shrine? Yes, when exactly. you go back, it's like you never left? Yeah. That's funny. Um, when you were a kid... Well, we're here, for those who, uh, obviously you can't see this, but we're doing this in David's, what can only be called a museum of popular culture, of superheroes and science fiction, and I can only imagine as a kid, this was the stuff that turned you yeah. on, right? although, I mean, I guess I was always a collector. I mean, I definitely went through my phases of baseball cards, and, you know, at some point or another... I realized I emptied out a storage unit in New York with, you know, like 60 long boxes of comics that I thought were I was going to retire on. Oh, right, we you all know, did. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, sold them basically for like $30 a box, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. But uh, so I was always, I had the collecting gene, if that, whatever that is. Right. Um, but I played with the stuff. I mean, I wasn't like, I wasn't like an eight-year-old that thought to myself, like, I need to put this in, you know, a box. It'll be worth something. Right. I, tore my packages open and played with the stuff. But yeah, I mean, Star Wars was a very big defining moment for me. I, you know, I was seven years old in uh, 77. Right in the yeah. And it was just, you know, the action figures, Halloween costumes. I mean, I just collected that stuff, you know, all through, you know, my childhood. And I was a comic book reader and my folks were... You know, it's one of those funny things where I don't think they loved that I was reading comics, but they were happy I was reading. Mm. So, you know, I so I always read comics. And again, I wasn't necessarily, I didn't know you could collect comic art. I didn't know what comic art was. I just read comics and I just read the stuff I liked. Right. But yeah. But this was the stuff that was very much around me. So was the dream when you were a kid to get into entertainment? Did, was that a goal of yours? It's funny. Um, I loved it. I mean, I loved... Uh, my mom is a big moviegoer and a big mm-hmm. comedy person. And, like, when I was a kid... Were you folks in the industry at all? No. My mother's a school teacher. My dad was, like, a trust in estates and taxes and whatever. Okay. Jewish. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, but she had like a great collection of comedy albums that I sort of got from her when she took them out of her like mother's place from my grandma's place. Right. So I got exposed to, you know, Mort Saul albums wow. and, you know, First Family and Bob Newhart and that kind of stuff. And she was a big movie goer. So, you know, back when they used to have like revival houses in New York, you know, she took me to my first like Hitchcock movies and things like that. So I, I loved the inter- I loved movies and TV and I read about it and I was a big comedy nerd and mm-hmm. I memorized Steve Martin's Wild and Crazy Guy album sure. and all that stuff. But I don't think I had any awareness that this was a career. I, I know that sounds odd now. Especially in New York City. I you know, know I talk to some people who grow up, you know, in Maryland or the right. middle of the country or something. They say I never dawned on me that this could be a career. But in New York City, you know, I, you're in the you're funny, in the heart of I it. I was so into Letterman. I was so into SNL. I mean I can I remember the uh, we had a family friend who was like an RCA satellite engineer and he got us tickets to like a dress rehearsal of SNL once wow. and I thought I was going to like lose my mind um, but I, we didn't know I, there, there's no one I knew growing up that was c- creative like that we didn't know any writers we didn't know anybody and so 
I guess I knew there were writers, but I just didn't know what that path was or how one did it. it just did you seemed... did you write as a kid? Did you write your own comic books? Or I wrote, you know, I wrote my own comic books. You know, I we you know in on my high school video yearbook, a buddy and I, you know, we ripped off and did like you know top ten lists about the school and all that kind of stuff you would think to do, but just not didn't think to myself like write a script, write a movie. Right. I guess. right. Yeah. So then. The next step is Harvard for yeah. you. And that's where I sort of really, I guess, put it together, if that makes or realized that it, you could do this. Well, what was the idea going into Harvard then? Going into Harvard, plan? I probably would, like, if, if everything had gone the way it was supposed to, I would be a very funny lawyer or a very funny guy on Wall Street. Like, I'd be the guy, you'd be very excited to be like, oh, I'm on his team? Well, that'll be fun. Like, I bet he's, he'll say something funny at, like, 9 o'clock at night and lo mein noodles will come out of my nose. Like, that, I think, hopefully that was my career trajectory. Wow, so you yeah. really didn't have that No, anything? I just kind of went thinking, you know, all that kind of stuff. I was a gov major. I mean, I went wow. to Harvard, you know, and started studying government and... With an eye, I guess, on like law school, and I couldn't even really tell you what I thought I was going to do. It was just that. Hmm. And, and 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 I will say this: I remember I had met uh, an entertainment lawyer, so that was, I guess, somewhere in the back of my mind. My secret goal was like, I guess, if I could become a lawyer, which will make everybody happy. The the trick is I'll I'll segue over to I'll be around uh, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll segue over to it, and I actually at one point or another, and again. This was after I did know when I, I well, I'm going out of order, but I did I, I then got involved with the Lampoon, right? And I started writing and just started realizing like this was something I wanted to do, but to sort of hedge my bets and kind of I guess keep my parents off my back, I did college recruiting where like the big companies like all these like like Wall Street firms come to the campus sort of sign, yeah and you yeah. sign up for interviews so i signed up for all of these interviews and i had not taken any economics i don't i knew nothing <laughs> i remember once sitting with disney strategic planning and i was asking them more questions about the 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 disney part of it than the strategic <laughs> right. planning part and that none of it went anywhere except Procter and Gamble had something that they called like brand management, which I never quite figured out what it all was, but I would have been in charge of like toothpaste in some part of the country. <laughs> and I think my job partially would have been to like go to the big grocery stores and make sure that the toothpaste was, you know, getting a good spot. I mean, I don't really know, but I aced that interview. Something, I guess wow. that was a little bit more of a verbal thing than a, than an economics thing. And they wanted to fly me to Columbus, Ohio or Cincinnati, mm. somewhere in Ohio for an interview. And I just went, okay, I'm done with this nonsense. <laughs> and it's like, I think I want to be a comedy writer. You missed yeah. out on the opportunity. I know, I know. Brand management. Just think directly, where AIM could be. Or right. Crest. Yeah. Just or soap someplace. Oh, <laughs> oh what could soap, have been? Please, to dare to what dream. Could have soap. Been. Yeah. Um, so you're at Harvard. You're doing the Lampoon, and then at, by that point, uh, Harvard and the Lampoon. I mean, was the stuff of legend in the comedy world. Yeah, it was. You're it following was, it was in the, in the starting footsteps, to that so. kind of thing. The Simpsons sort of started, and when the Simpsons happened, but even National Lampoon and everything. Those yes, guys no, came absolutely. Out of there, but there was know? something about the Simpsons where because it was so different. I mean, again, I can only speak to what I saw. Right. It was so different, and the, the kinds of jokes that they were doing really seemed like the kind of jokes we were trying to do with each other. Right. And so that one really spoke to me. And, and then and, and Conan, then, of course, who had. Conan, 
Harvard, yep. so that's a direct connection. And then you'd hear about these guys. So, like, I didn't at first, you know, it's like you hear about Conan O'Brien. He's one of the Simpsons writers. But then you hear he also used to work at SNL. And then you hear about, like, oh, this guy, and he worked at Letterman. It's like, oh, I love Letterman. Maybe now I'm understanding why I like Letterman. You know, mm-hmm. obviously beyond the Dave of it all. Right. And so you start to make these little pieces and connections, and I start to realize, like, a, you can do this as a career. B, a lot of these people that have been where I'm standing right now have done it, can do it. Right. And it's not a, you know, I want to, I don't know if anyone cares. You know, I, I hate the idea that people somehow think like you get in the Harvard Lampoon and someone gives you a job. Right. What I always sort of say about it, if this makes sense, is it was almost as if I was on a writing staff in a room three years before I ever had my first job. Gotcha. So in college, when I was hanging out in the Lampoon, we were, you know, like a room. We were trying to one-up each other, trying to tell the joke that is the alpha joke that makes that the idea that you that no one else can think of. If somebody tells a joke that's a little hacky or a little trite, we, we pounce, we make fun of you. We, you know, if you tell a bad joke, we might make fun of you for that joke for two years. Right. We, we beat the bad ideas out of you. You're honing, and, right. you're honing your, your, your instincts for what's good. Comedy that's exactly, that's exactly it. So by the time, I guess I always say like a Harvard Lampoon person graduates, it's like they had a job even if they didn't have a job. Right. And I do believe that's that has been the I don't know, the secret of why there have been so many Lampoon people going like into a sports comedy. analogy yeah. you're spending a lot of years in the minors before you get to the that's big show, exactly but you're it. ready. Yeah. You've no, been you've yeah, been exactly. seasoned. Yes. Yeah. What was the first step for you out of heart? Was that SNL? Um, well, actually, oddly enough, the Lampoon had this long history, which is, by the way, how the National Lampoon started, of doing what they used to call summer projects. And they would always be these big parodies of, like, magazines. They did, like, a famous Playboy parody and a famous, you know, Newsweek parody. And uh, uh, Doug Kinney and Henry Beard did the uh, the Board of the Rings. You right, know? So right. They, so these were these very big sort of famous, like, literary parodies. And when I was a junior in college, the summer between my junior and senior year, the Lampoon did its first TV project, which was at Comedy Central. It was a fake 10-year anniversary documentary of MTV called MTV Give Me Back My Life. (laughs) And it was a sort of, as I said, fake documentary with like fake characters, but tracing the history of... MTV and I got to we wrote it up in Cambridge and then a couple of us went down to New York and kind of went down the production with it and the show is awful I mean I can't tell you how bad it is (laughs) but it was the greatest like experience of my life because we just we worked 24 hours a day on it we you know people slept on my parents floor you know we just did it and we didn't know any better and we just did it and I learned from so many both good things but also mistakes sure um and then in there um it was put together by a guy named Billy Kimball who's now on my veep staff so Billy sort of took a real sort of I'll get to this in a second, but we did this show, and I met Al for the first time, Al Franken, or former now Senator Al Franken, who really was a mentor towards me, uh, to me, I guess. And when the the show ended, I went back to college, and then somewhere in the, I guess, in the spring, I got a call from Billy saying that he and Al were going to do comedy coverage of the Democratic and Republican conventions, also on Comedy Central, and they wanted to hire me as a writer. So that was really my first job job you know people um, ask all the time how do you 
get it, your opportunities and how do you get into the industry and people ask people like yourself who work all the time and i always say the key is just to do the stuff the more yeah. stuff you do the more people you meet well, eventually one thing funny. will lead to another when i get asked that the same question nowadays especially with the internet which obviously when i was in college when you were in college you know didn't exist right if you've got a phone and a you know and a modem you or whatever produce. you want to say and you're not putting up sketches and short films and whatever right now, you have no excuse. I understand that's not the job you want, but there are so many people working on all the various nighttime shows right now who have literally been hired off of Twitter. Yeah. So if you can't force yourself to sit down every night, even if you don't have a job, and write and just start writing for lack of a better word, weekend update jokes and monologue jokes and just start putting them up on Twitter. Yeah, your first 20 are not going to be great and your second 100 aren't going to be good. But, you know, somewhere in there, if you have some talent, it will emerge. And if you're there, someone will, and you're funny, it will be found. Yes. I mean, I'm sure people want to go, oh, no, 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 no. But I honestly, I'm a big believer in just make stuff, do stuff. I mean, I just, that's, I guess, what I would do if I were in the same position. And in tomorrow's installment, we will talk about David leaving Harvard and ending up on staff at Saturday Night Live, what that experience was like. And then the rest of the week, we're going to talk about Seinfeld. We're going to talk about the Animated Clerks series. We're going to talk about Curb Your Enthusiasm. Of course, we'll talk about Veep. It's a great, great interview. One of the favorites I've done so far. So make sure you stick around for that. If you are not a subscriber to The Ralph Report, I uh, hope you've enjoyed this little free taste that we give away on Mondays. But... You're going to miss out on a bunch of good stuff this week. So go to patreon.com slash the Ralph Report and sign up for the Ralph Report this week. I cannot wait to get to my kid giving you a review of a film that we both enjoyed. Uh, Sherlock Gnomes, a lot of folks like it when Livy goes to the movie. So we'll be talking about that. Of course, it's one hit wonder Wednesday coming up. We've got Sex University, a lot of great topics, a lot of great input from you, the Garmy, and more with David Mandel this week. It's going to be a good one. So come on back tomorrow. Can't wait to talk to you then. I love you. I mean it. Bye.